Hello, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, the Ringer is launching a new podcast feed called Boom Bust, the new hub for narrative podcasts documenting the rise and fall of companies, celebrities, and trends. Season one, hosted by our own Alyssa Bereznak, takes you through this spectacular journey of HQ trivia, the once $100 million industry-altering company turned disaster. Alyssa interviewed dozens of former employees, investors, journalists, and fans, bringing you the behind-the-scenes story of how HQ crumbled from within. Subscribe to Boom Bust HQ Trivia and check out the first two episodes out now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It is another delicious and thirst-quenching edition of House of Cards. The food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people. I am your hungry host, Joe House, and this is on the Rigor Podcast Network. My culinary comrades, as you know from the last handful of shows that we've been trotting out here, during the stay-at-home moment we're all living in, we're looking for opportunities to be of some public service to you in recognition of the times where we all have a little bit more time on our hands, allegedly, but definitely a little more time for some introspection and exploration of personal growth. As we uh, sort of entered this period, I know I was thinking about what are the things I'm going to learn about? What can I catch up on? My reading, my viewing. One of the things that could be on your list, should be on your list, how to drink wine. There's been a lot of wine drinking in my life over the last couple of months, I can assure you. On today's show, we have an old friend of ours, Chris Stang. You know him from the infatuation and Zagats. He's a food information media titan. He's been on a bunch of times. He and an award-winning sommelier, Grant Reynolds, got together and wrote up a book called How to Drink Wine, The Easiest Way to Learn What You Like. And Grant is an award-winning sommelier in New York City. He is the owner of a wine retail shop called Parcel. He's a partner at restaurants in New York City like Charlie Bird and Pasquale Jones and Legacy Records. Those guys collaborated on this book. They're also collaborating on a weekly school series, How to Drink Wine School, So we thought it'd be great to have them on, hear about sort of what they've been doing in this uh, stay-at-home moment, both with in in the wine world, but also with the restaurants and the industries they're focused on. So let's get in that belly with our boy Stanger and Grant Reynolds. All right, Taste Buds, on the line, actually on the Zoom... We've got a, a couple of, of heavy hitters. Chris Stang, our old pal from The Infatuation and Zagat, and a heavy hitter in the world of wine. Welcome to House of Carbs for the first time, Grant Reynolds. Thank you. All right. What's up? Yeah. So, fellas, we're going to do your book. We're going to talk about how to drink wine, the easiest way to learn what you like. But we have this this opportunity, kind of a unique opportunity here at the very beginning, because you guys sort of walk in different paths in the in the food world. So we have an opportunity to get two distinct perspectives on, you know, sort of how the pandemic has been affecting your realm. And Grant, I want to start with you as kind of a, a, a boots on the ground slash belly on the ground. You have your uh, wine retail shop in New York City, Parcel, which I really want to call Parcelle. I really want to call it that, but I know it's Parcel. And then you've, you're a partner in a handful of restaurants in the city. I want to hear a little bit about you know what you guys have been doing and how you've been navigating the, the terrain. A lot of people call it Parcelle on the other side of the river in our beloved New Jersey. Uh-oh. Does that but make I- me a Jersey guy? I don't know, man. Good call. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's you know to say the least. I think everybody is you know 
probably heard at this point, uh, the impact it's, it's had on the hospitality industry across the board. And for us, we closed all the restaurants down on March 16th. Um, we have three spots in Manhattan and just this week we opened up our kind of pizza pasta spot, Pasquale Jones, which is in Nolita, which feels great. Um, but, you know, small bit of the team we were able to bring back is psyched and people have been, uh, showing up. The city definitely has a, a different energy and a bit of a smile to it this week. I would say everybody, whether that's just the nice weather or, you know, things starting to, uh, to look up for everybody a little bit. That's good. And then Charlie bird goes live on Thursday. Shoot, so. Oh, wow. So for those restaurants, how are you handling the logistics? Yeah, that was a big thing. I mean, it's interesting. So out of, out of both of them, we did delivery before. Just getting it like jump started was a huge hassle because now you have so you have so much to consider, right? The safety of your employees, the volume of delivery. You know, it was like a small, small thing for us before, and we always focused on dining service, how to sell like cocktails to go. All these things were were really uh, and and we did. You know, we hit stop. So then in a lot of ways, it was like reopening a whole new business, which was, it was also kind of exciting too. I think a lot of creativity from the food industry, you've seen just amazing things that I think will have momentum, you know, beyond this period. Um, we'll have better at home experiences in, 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 uh, in any sort of way. So it was a lift. And now I think, you know, we, we feel good. It's probably what we'll continue to do throughout throughout the summer. It's, it's definitely uncertain, but we're, we're feeling fortunate that people are showing up and buying some wine on the streets and pizza to go and, and uh, we'll go from there. So I've been to Charlie Bird and part of its charm, honestly, is its intimacy. I mean, I don't, this isn't a name drop. I, I went there with a mutual pal of ours, Rembert Brown, because he, he, you know, he treats Charlie Bird like it's his cafeteria. Definitely. And uh, he got engaged there. <laughs> of course he did. Partner, my business partner is in all of his engagement photos. <laughs> well, the night that we went, we sat at a table adjacent to Olivia Wilde. Oh. And it was like a, a, a table adjacent to means I could have reached out and touched her on the nose. Now, I didn't do that. You know, because I'm I have decency. I'm a decent human being. Well, so occasionally <laughs> decent. I'm I'm interested in how how do you handle kind of the intimacy of a place like Charlie Bird when you when you reopen this Thursday? How are you going to space it out? How do you capture that vibe? I mean, we're going to have music blasting out <laughs> into the streets, and and that has been the hardest thing. I think Charlie Bird, we're really lucky. In, in, you know, Pasquale Jones a little bit too, is we have this great outdoor patio space. Um, so to be able to like, just kind of activate that and create some energy and ambiance outside for people while also, you know, not encouraging them to like throw a block party. It's crazy. I live in the West village and there's one restaurant on my street that never shut down. And you go that by there on like West fourth and 11th street and it's packed and the cops roll through all the time. And, and, you know, it's not a good thing, I think, considering how severe this is. So for us, it's, you know, we're, we're trying to strike a balance of having our brand like exist beyond, you know, a cocktail in a plastic cup and have people still be able to relate to some of that, that feeling that, you know, Ram and everybody, myself included, really loved, but without encouraging people to you know, do what we're not supposed to be doing. Yeah, right put now. themselves or others in harm's way. Yeah, it's tough. But, um, I, it, you know, we don't know. I think the 50% occupancy stuff that you're seeing in other markets, I'm not sure that really makes sense for New York. You know, none of all of our restaurants, not just ours, but like all New York restaurants were over occupancy on any given night, no matter what, like a hundred plus, you just were. And that was part of it, like especially a restaurant like Pasquale Jones, where you you would have been touching her nose if you were at the certain table. You people are sitting on top of each other, and those are the things that everybody's just going to have to consider. And I think you'll see a whole different dining experience for people. And how about Parcel? Did you have to shut down at all? No, I you know that was 
an amazing thing. Parcel was a business that was kind of just like a, a sort of a side project. It was fun. And we had this tiny, it's like a 200 square foot space. And so we were really lucky to have infrastructure to be able to like turn it up. And it did. It, it just, it really took off. I was able to, to devote more time to it. The team there had everything in place to be like an e-commerce business. That was always our, our angle to begin with was wine delivery. And then I think like with the stuff that Chris and I have been doing in a few hours, we're going to start drinking wine on Zoom. Right. We're going to talk about that. But like all these, you know, all these opportunities started, started to come around, which feel really good. And, and I think everybody's been drinking a lot. Right. And everybody seems to be drinking wine because it'd be weird if we were all at home drinking bottles of vodka. Kind of weird. Kind of weird. I mean, it would make us Russian is what it would make it. Make us. Yeah, exactly. We just, I think we, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but we sold our book rights to Russia today. If there's a dinner out there, we haven't finalized. Congrats. Congrats. The first Congrats. two markets outside the U.S. were were the Ukraine and Russia. So big opportunity over there. I mean, it feels like it. So, so Stanger, you're a titan in food information media. I have taken note of how you guys have, have pivoted on both um, the infatuation and Zagats with focus on the industry, focus on, on consumers, focus on how to help uh, restaurants. And I've enjoyed very much the Zagat stories, uh, which feels like a new kind of thing. Yeah. How have you guys been handling, you know, the turn of events? Yeah. I mean, look, it affects us in a, in a really different way, but at the same time, you know, we are connected to restaurants and dining, obviously. So the second thing shut down, we had to figure out, okay, for essentially two brands that are, completely designed to help people, you know, make decisions outside of their home. Uh, when people can't leave the home, what are they, what do we, what do we do with that? And how do we continue to serve people? And, um, and then ultimately, like you said, how do we also, you know, serve and help the industry because, you know, so quickly you could tell that this was all just going to be bad for really bad for everybody. The Zagat stories part of it was something that we had actually spun up and started before any of this happened, because while we've been building this new Zagat platform that, ultimately be a, a discovery resource. Um, we also wanted to have the ability to do, you know, editorial content. We're good at that. And the Zagat brand is so powerful. So we love the idea of giving, you know, restaurateurs and hospitality professionals a voice and an ability to kind of tell a story in their words. Um, and that was what we started building it. We launched it in February, kind of right before all this happened. And it actually turned out to be um, serendipitous because then it just became a very easy place for us to have these people tell their stories about how they're adapting and how they're adjusting and what they're going through. Because I think as we've all seen that that's so important, you know, people need to understand people, meaning elected representatives and, you know, the, the folks in charge of handing out money as we go through all of these, you know, I guess what you call bailout or stimulus programs, you know, these stories have to get out there. Um, they need to reach consumers and they need to reach people that make decisions and, Hopefully, you know, Zagat stories and some of the stuff we've been doing with the infatuation has been able to, you know, make some impacts. But yeah, I mean, you know, we we had to just like everybody else, we had to very quickly figure out what to do and what our, you know, purpose is in this environment. I think we've felt very fortunate that, you know, the community of people that come to the infatuation Zagat for, you know, restaurant information or advice, you know, they, they give us great permission to help them make decisions outside of their home. And I think what we've seen is that they've also given us permission to help them make decisions inside their home. So as we started moving into things like, you know, delivery content and takeout content, um, we also wanted to tinker with things that felt a little bit different than our core content, but related. So we started doing a lot of stuff around cocktails, which you've probably seen helping people figure out how to stock their bar, what, you know, how to make the perfect Negroni at home. Um, Brian Kim, our staff writer in New York, was a bartender for a long time at La Bernadette, and he's super engaging and fun and has a great point of view with this stuff. So we've really had him kind of run with, with our content, our cocktail content, and we've been expanding that over the last few weeks. And then it really gave you know us an opportunity to do some of the things that we've been wanting to do with wine for a long time. And the book was a part of that. You know, I've always felt, and I, and I know Grant has felt this way for a long time, that there's a real opportunity to try and make wine a more relatable subject for people, especially in that, that early phase, as people are really starting to begin learning about wine, you know, there's a lot of texts and a lot of information out there for people who want to become 
wine professionals or maybe expand on some knowledge they already have. But that first step is really tricky and sometimes can be hard um, for people to wrap their head around in terms of where to go to start learning about wine. So the book obviously was the beginning of that, but also um, this the pandemic has sort of required us to find new opportunities to do content with the infatuation on the web. And so we've started to do a lot of that with wine um, on the web. And also, you know, Grant and I really pretty much immediately started hosting these how to drink wine schools every Tuesday, where we'll pick uh, a certain wine and a topic and spend an hour with, you know, a couple hundred people talking through what they need to know about that certain wine or that region and it's been great. It's been really successful and really fun. And I think a good way for us to shine some light on what Parcel is doing, shine some light on what the infatuation and Parcel are doing together in terms of wine content, and then also just promote the book, which came out on May 12th. So it's been an interesting seven, eight, nine, ten, two hundred 10, 200 weeks. I don't even know where we are anymore, but I think I'm, I'm enjoying the challenge of trying to constantly figure out new strategies and pretty confident that on the other side of this, we'll all, we'll all come out of it and hopefully be better for it. Yeah. Well, speaking of the, the be better for it, there is kind of a, a fortunate coincidence in terms of when the book came out and kind of the, the moment that, that we uh, find ourselves in. And, and in particular, the aspect of having a little bit more time to be introspective and to be thinking about personal growth and what are the things that each of us might be interested in. And then, you know, wine is a natural one because there's a lot of wine drinking going on at home and, you know, growing, you know, one click smarter about all of that and and having this book kind of arrive coincident with all of that. Um, I know it wasn't deliberate uh, to have it drop in the middle of a pandemic because you didn't see the pandemic coming, but I'm interested in, you know, just how did the, the project come together? How did you guys get together and say, hey, we should do a book. Yeah. Well, look, like you said, you're right that it certainly helps that we can now call drinking educational, right? So the book is the book has helped everybody spend their time with wine in a uh, more purposeful way and uh, yes. all getting smarter. But yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to what, what I was just talking about with wanting to figure out. I mean, ever since Grant and I met, we both just really connected around, I think, the idea that there's a way to make you know the world of wine I hate to say like I use that word relatable too much because I think it often doesn't mean anything. But you know, for someone like me who became passionate about wine just by drinking it and have tried to you know try to do most of my learning just by drinking wine, um, it just seemed like there you know were people like Grant in the world and and you know um, other people I'm sure who are in this industry and are really smart but also have a way about making learning about wine more appealing. And, and Grant, you know, certainly to me was um, someone who best embodied that and was just a really unique person in the sense that Grant's the kind of guy who can walk around a restaurant and explain, you know, the wine you're drinking to you in a way that makes it really fun and not, you know, you never feel bad about not knowing things when, you know, Grant's at the table talking to you about, you know, the wine list or something he's recommending. So as we got to know each other and, and as we became um, better friends, it just, we kind of kept talking about this idea that there's got to be an opportunity here to kind of take, you know, similar to what we've done with the infatuation, um, you know, uh, a more kind of laid back approach to some of this, but also with the mindfulness about being, you know, serious about it because there's a lot to learn and just try to try to tackle wine, you know, in a new way. And so um, the book opportunity came up um, as we had been talking an opportunity came up through Clarkson Potter and um, Grant and I just sat down and said, Hey, let's, let's do this together. So we started writing it, I guess, probably about a year and a half ago. And, uh, here we are. So let me ask you, Grant, um, since, since Stanger is giving you credit for the thing that, that to me is like the most anxiety inducing aspect. Now I, I love wine. I'm a person that drinks wine when I, with food, I don't tend to drink wine on a standalone basis. I drink other stuff when I'm just like drinking for, for, for social reasons. But if there's food in the mix, huge wine guy. The problem I have is that it is intimidating. It's uh, intimidating to go to the store and 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 buy wine and feel like you're not getting ripped off. It's intimidating to go into a restaurant and sit down and look at a wine list that has a you know 50 or 100 or 150 wines, only 10 of which I might have ever heard of. 
It's intimidating to try and tell the sommelier, this is what I think I like, but I'm a wine dummy, so I'm not sure. Can you help me? How do we deal with this intimidation factor? That's tough. I mean, even when you look at a wine list, like first a cocktail list, right? You look at a cocktail list and you see like words that you, you know what those things taste like, right? You see like lemon, citrus, the alcohol, et cetera. You, you're like, you kind of have an idea as to what you're getting yourself into. Um, whereas wine doesn't do that at all, right? A wine list, unless you're at a certain level, you know, just seeing the words, there's, there's nothing there to, to kind of shepherd you beyond how much you want to spend. Right. And so the, the thing is, is I feel like I learned this and, and truthfully the book I do feel like is kind of a reflection of like when Chris and I would just go out to dinner, he'd ask a question or I'd like say something about the wine that we're drinking in terms of communicating it in a way that like not everybody needs to be a wine professional or like a student of wine to be able to enjoy it. Right. But I think so many people have are intimidated by it. And into yeah, I have my hand raised and, and they're intimidated by it because it puts it out there that it's this thing that you like have to know about in order to be able to enjoy it. Right. Which yeah, is like, it feels impenetrable. It always at the end of the day, like you just, you don't really have to know about how it's made or, what the producer does in the vineyard and, and, you know, all of the conversations that I would have with industry friend or a colleague, right. Are very different to what the information that would be important to you or that hanging out with Chris and other friends who are just into food and into wine, but didn't care necessarily as much about like all the nitty gritty science behind it, but just wanted to know like, Hey, okay, cool. That's an interesting aspect of it or a part of the story that is kind of relatable or you sort of understand how it tastes without using these really like obscure and romantic like flavor descriptions that nobody's ever like, I don't know. Wine words. Whatever, like Like leather. Why why are we calling wine leathery? Yeah, exactly. But like, yeah, exactly. Or fucking rocks and things like that. You're like, all right. Right. It makes the whole thing kind of laughable though. Like, yeah, there's certain wines that kind of smell like leather, but the thing that I, I, I hope the book does. And I hope that we, we, we are seeing people like uh, tonight, we're going to talk about natural wine. And I think like natural wine or like the point system, it gave like one thing to people that they could be like, Oh, that's what I want. Right. Or, or it distilled it down, right? Natural wine is like controversial and there's a ton to talk about within it. And it's definitely like a style. But I think that a lot of the reason that people are like, oh, I'm really into natural wine is because it kind of gives you like a one word thing to be like, I want a wine that tastes like a little wild or different like that, right? And it, and it kind of stops it. But I think for, for, for us, we're, we're hoping to just give people like just enough information to where you can understand if you like something, understand why you like it and then be able to apply that to other things. Right. So we always talk about it. You can kind of put wine into like four categories. There's light and crisp white wines. There's big buttery white wines. There's light bodied fruity reds, Pinot Noir, and there's big and bold red Cabernet. And then everything like stems off of there. Right. So you like Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet. You start there. And then from there, you can like build this whole kind of web of things that relate back up to the wine that you first experienced and you liked. And you're like, oh, I, I like light bodied red wines. What's some other stuff that's like this? So I can just start to like build my Rolodex out. And some you got to start somewhere. And and I, I will say like the first thing I always ask people when they're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'd roll it to the table. They're like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I, I only want to spend 50 bucks and I want a red wine. I'm like, okay, I'll just tell me like one wine. If you can do this, that you've liked in the past and I'll get you something. It might not have that same producer or even that same grape, but I guarantee that I'll be able to get you something that like objectively is very similar to that. And so whether that's like a photo of a 
bottle that you really liked, just like one wine. You're like, all right, I like Pinot Noir, but I want to try something different. I want to spend 50 bucks. What do you got? Done. Um, we're never going to miss. Yeah, right. Because that's like the job, right? That's it. Like, <laughs> and if I give you something that doesn't taste anything like Pinot Noir, I suck. And I'm just being a jerk. It's like, that doesn't mean I have to give you Pinot Noir, but like, we'll figure it out. That's the thing with the book that was, that was fun about it was that, you know, I think for me, you know, trying to learn about wine and even reading about wine in other contexts, you always felt like the people that are writing the books about wine are trying to, you know, sort of disseminate knowledge about wine. There's, there's this sense that everything has to be covered, right? That you, if you're going to talk about Italian wine, then you got, you got to talk about like all of the grapes of Italy because you can't sort of show favoritism or, you know, just demonstrate some incomplete set of knowledge because you're not really covering all of it. And I think like what Grant just said is a perfect, uh, you know, sort of demonstration of the way he thinks, what makes him such a, you know, an effective teacher, or at least, you know, guide when it comes to, you know, your experience at the table or in, in Parcel. But, you know, when we were working on this together, it was great because Grant was really willing to be like, cool, we don't, yeah, we don't need to cover Grecetto, the grape of Italy. Like, let's just focus on these three things I think that matter there. And then really just kind of trying to make it really straightforward and, and letting someone else be the, you know, the encyclopedia. Like this book was really just meant to help embody the stuff that Grant is talking about, which, which is here's a handful of tips in terms of the way you navigate a store or a wine list. And then here are 29 wines that you think you're, we think you're going to come across in the world. They are certainly not the only 29 wines that you should know about in your life, but it's a good place to start. And then one thing I think that was fun to write that I, that I've gotten feedback from people on that's been really useful is we have a whole section called infrequently asked questions. And that whole idea is just what about like the really basic stuff that people aren't sure about, but they're sometimes afraid to ask because they don't want to feel dumb or look like they don't know anything like how to use a wine key to open a wine bottle or why do people sniff wine or why do they swirl it? And that stuff was actually really fun to write because I think it felt like we were we weren't going to be confined by what you know wine writing is supposed to be or what a wine text should achieve. We just want to try to serve people with something useful. And you know, this book is small; it's like a five by seven. It's meant to like sit you know next to your wine at, the, at your house or be something that you can take with you and you know read on on a subway or something like that on your way to dinner. And um, that that I think has been nice too is just being able to be free in the sense that let's think about what a wine book or wine sort of education should be at this stage and not be limited by what someone else says it should be. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you, you open the door. You are not a sommelier. Um, so you, that you, you and I are, have that in common. I want to know why sniff, why swirl, how to taste. Let's let's tell the hungry homies. You know well, what so I mean. Much, so much of it is the, we talk about in the book is like so much of it you don't really need to, right? I mean, we talk about smelling wine. <laughs> smelling wine is important, right? It, it, it adds to your experience, and there's stuff that you'll probably smell that you won't always taste. But you don't have to like stick your nose in a, in a glass of wine every time you drink it if you don't want to, right? And swirling the wine certainly helps expose. You know, it brings air into the glass and helps you smell things better air can change the way wine tastes over time. But like, let me just tell you, for me, I do it not because of what I see other people doing or any of the um, actual scientific. To me, it's, it's foreplay. I feel, sure. I mean, I'm getting, I'm about to get started here. I want to get the juices flowing a little bit. Let me, let me take this in and we got to get the senses working, you know? And by the way, there's a ritual to all that, which is great, right? Like there's a, there's a whole process and ritual to pulling your bottle out, opening it up, pouring it, sniffing it, swirling it. Like that's great. And certainly we are not discouraging any of that, but I think what we're trying to do is just, I think sometimes if you sit, you know, you sit across from someone at a restaurant table and they're like sniffing the cork and sticking their nose in the wine and like, you know, <laughs> hand gesturing a bunch, you wonder what's going, what the hell is going on over there? And do what I need to be going doing on that over there? Yeah. And so all we're trying to do is add some explanation to it. And, you know, lots of questions will come up around like, should I decant my wine? Do I decant all of the wine that I drink? And, you know, what hopefully we were able to do is, is help people understand that. I think one of the biggest things is that this all doesn't have to be all that serious, at least at this stage, right? Have fun with it. Like you really can't do it wrong, you know, just drink wine, enjoy it, figure out what you like, learn, take notes, do whatever you want to do to help yourself, you know, retain information and knowledge. But 
I think also a part of it is that we just tried to write a book that's entertaining. It's funny. It's uh, irreverent at times. There's definitely things that we wrote that are going to get Grant in trouble professionally for sure. But <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I appreciate it's, it. It's a good time, you know. Yeah, I want to ask uh, Grant. There, so there's there is a section of the book. Pick the wine to match your life, not your plate. And you say you don't have to think about what wine goes best with the halibut in the butter. But I, I want to know what wine goes best with the <laughs> with the halibut in the butter. But I, I, I we'll get to that in a second. What do you mean by this idea? Pick the wine to match your life, not your plate. Um, for me, this is almost. Not almost. I think it's more important than anything else as far as like food pairing goes. Only and and what we mean is like there's wines to be drinking that are that are more appropriate to be drinking at like a certain time of day, or if the weather outside is of a certain temperature, or you're in a place, right, to where you're not drinking wine at at the dinner table. Right. And then there's other wines that just don't make sense. We'll give you an example. Like when you're, you're, you're on the beach, right. Everybody can think of like what you might be eating when you're on the beach. Chances are you're eating like, I don't know, fresher, lighter, easy stuff. Sand to full of sand. It's got some grit in it. <laughs> little crackers okay. and cheese. You can crackers do that. Yeah. Like you're not rolling out to the beach. Maybe you are, but like, you're not rolling out to the beach with like, meatloaf or like like, bolognese that's just weird right (laughs) and like that's the same experience around wine like if i'm just sit on the beach like i want something that's like easy and it's refreshing and it just it drinks like you know the the type of cocktail that you would have there right yeah let's do it it's the beginning of the summer yesterday was memorial day it's warm outside on the east coast finally what are we drinking Exactly. No, I mean, listen, like I, rosé is like a, it's a drink, right? At the end of the day, like it's delicious, but it, it's obviously wine, but it's like, it's something that you should, people just should consume, right? Like Aperol spritz, rosé, whatever. We'll just throw it back. There's doesn't need to be like overly romantic about it. As long as it's light, there's no added sugar. It's refreshing. I think yeah. you can be happy about it. And that's an obvious thing right now. But we talk about it too. We definitely hate on Pinot Grigio in the book. Part of that is <laughs> I saw that. What's the hate? I mean, that's a good summer wine, isn't it? Yeah. But you know what? Like <laughs> what we're trying to encourage people to do is to drink. There's a whole bunch of other Italian white wines out there. Okay. Like in any any liquor store, wine shop, you'll be able to find there's like Pinot Grigio. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that people forget about that ultimately kind of fulfills that like, hey, I just want to like drink it. And I don't want to really have to think about it um, kind of experience uh, that, that, that we really like. So like Italian white varieties, Pinot Grigio aside, um, I think are really great right now. Like what? Uh, Name a couple. Uh, Vermentino. Oh. Fiano. They're all grapes that like you don't really, you know, see outside of Italy. Um, a grape called Friolano. Oh, I've heard of that. I said, I've heard of the Friolano. Friolano grows right next to Pinot Grigio. And that must be why. Different. Exactly. <laughs> you know, a bunch of cool stuff going on in Spain too. Spanish white wines kind of across the board are, are uh, delicious. Yeah. Somebody if- turned me on. I'm going to say it wrong. Chocolina. Yeah. That's what yeah. I'm talking about. You nailed it. Love that stuff. Oh, wow. I said it right. The Albarinos <laughs> and the Chocolina. I'm on them. I love them. You're on it. Great. That's summer. what you want. And good for summer, right? Yeah. Exactly. And super versatile with food. Super versatile with food or without food. Yes. Like, yes. We're, we're without, you. you know, they're lower in alcohol and you can casually take a bottle down and not, not, uh, be falling over, but that's in the same thing in the wintertime. Like if you're drinking chocolina sitting by the fireplace, like what, you know, it's like hanging out in a bikini in a snowstorm. You're like, what are you doing? Just, <laughs> there's other things that make more sense within that. So I don't know. That was the idea behind that. We had a lot of fun with it. It gave us an opportunity to, talk about things that like, you know, if you're not just having a three course meal and nailing wine pairings, which are definitely important, here's some ideas of like wines that if you're just throwing a party and you want to have some wine there, like here are a couple of suggestions around that. Yeah. I think too, like, it's definitely, you know, 
wine and food go together. That's the whole point. But I think for me, even, you know, reading about wines previous to this so much, you'd see so often like the first suggested pairing with a wine is like game birds. And I would always just think, (laughs) your house, what are you going to drink tonight with that pheasant? Like, you know, people just don't eat like that. And so I think that was a big part of it too, is trying like, yeah, they're, you know, you should definitely drink some Sangiovese and eat some pasta. That's going to be a good situation for you. But like, I don't really think you're worried so much about, you know, pairing wines with quail often enough for it to become a, you know, important part of your life. Right. Yeah. It's steak and pasta and chicken and then, and fish. I mean, that, that covers all of it, I think. Yeah. But Stanger, I have a question for you or, or both of you, but, but I'll start with you, Stanger. I went through this whole book. I looked at the index and maybe this is a commentary on my own palate, my own lack of sophistication. I didn't see Zinfandela anywhere. I didn't see Zin. And I'm not talking about white Zin. I'm not talking about the enormously popular white Zin in a box. I'm talking about the bold, spicy red Zin. Where's the Zin? Well, it's, there, there's a there's a few things that I mean we had to make some decisions. There were wines we left out of the 29. Okay. Mostly, it's, mostly it's 29 because 29 and wine rhymes. Um, that oh, was, I like it. <laughs> that was the whole formula. No, I mean I think ultimately we knew we were going to have to make some decisions about what made the cut and what didn't. And I think we did our best to hit the stuff that you know people see a lot on restaurant lists and in wine stores. And you know certainly in California, especially you'll see a lot of Zinfandel, but we felt like there were some other things we wanted to fit in and, and, uh, and hit first, but Hey man, if you like your, if you like a bottle of big Zinfandel, you go ahead and do that and we'll hit it in how to drink wine too. We'll do a whole section for you. That's good. I appreciate that. I appreciate the, the, the accommodation. So you, you guys mentioned the video series, how to drink wine school. Um, how many episodes are you in now? You've been doing it for four five, six weeks now, right? I think this is going to be 11 this week, something oh, like that. 11 weeks. Yeah, ten or oh, eleven. Okay, the first Friday, we do it on Tuesdays now. But you know, you could tell pretty quickly that we were all going to be living on these Zoom calls, and um, the the whole thing actually with the book, you know, Grant and I had been friends for a while, but the first time we actually started working on stuff together was we created an event called the Wine Room um, back in 2017, where we took over this like little space, by a 200 square foot space, and the whole idea was just, hey, let's get some people that are cool that are in the wine industry that can talk about wine in a, um, you know, accessible way. Let's serve some wine. Let's, and just sort of have little sessions where people come hang out and learn about wine. And we did it and it was a huge hit. We had like, you know, people lined up down the street to get into this thing over the spring weekend in, in 2017. And so, um, we started doing more of them. We did uh, one in LA, we were in a big house and did the, the, the wine room there. And then we actually started building, wine programming like that into EatsCon, our festival that Grant really curated and did the wines for. And so we had our, you know, it actually ended up that we had a panel tent that we'd always had at EatsCon where we would do talks with celebrities and, you know, people that are interesting in food. And then we actually started doing the wine room as a separate tent where we would bring in people and, you know, have them, you know, talk about either their wines they make or, you know, things that they're experts on. So, I mean, actually, you know, we were, we, we had been planning to drop the book right before EatsCon LA, which would have been May 15th and 16th or 16th and 17th. And so the 12th was the day it was going to come out. And then we had these big plans to, you know, do a big moment around the wine room and to celebrate the book and to kick it off that way. So as all of this started unfolding and it became really clear that none of those in real life uh, things were going to become options for us, we just thought, hey, Let's jump on Zoom. Let's start talking about wines. Maybe there's a way to plug Parcel into it so we can get the wine into people's hands and talk about it. And that's what we've been doing. So it's been really, really fun. And I think people have enjoyed it. And I think people have found them educational and also just, you know, a good way to find a way to spend your time well in quarantine. Yeah, I, I want to ask a couple more questions uh, about the weekly wine school. But you just reminded me of something. Did you guys do a wine room? With with Mike D from the Beastie Boys, yeah, that was that was the first one. He was the oh, last. Oh, so that okay. Uh, and and he, he's a, he's a liner note here at the beginning of the of the book. What what are Mike D's wine credentials? He's good, man. That dude knows wine. I, he he likes to drink wine. wine. <laughs> yeah, that dude knows a lot about wine. Like a bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pap. For sure, man. There's this whole section in the music industry, right, that are really into this stuff now like sports and everything and, and like Mike's a brilliant guy. And so I think people like, you know, he's, he's really into it. I can talk to Mike about like 
nuanced stuff in Burgundy or producers like real specific uh, winemaking stuff and things like that. He's like, he's super into it. And I think drinks a lot of the wines that used to come to Charlie Bird a bunch. It's a passion of his. Yeah. Well, I think and not to speak for Mike, but I think we've seen this true too, that there's, there's an element of wine that's almost similar to like record collecting, right? Where you find stuff that's hard to find or you, you know, whatever. And you know, you, you hold it, you hold on to it for the perfect time where you pull it out of your, you know, your cellar, or your storage closet or whatever, when some friends are over and you sort of enjoy that moment together. And I think certainly, you know, again, I, I'm, I, I would not uh, be the one to tell you, you know, Mike D's motivations around his passion for wine, but certainly other people that we know in the music business, there is that piece of it that's, that's super similar to so much of the things in music that we all love in terms of coming together with people and sharing experience and um, becoming really knowledgeable and understanding even like the provenance of certain things, you know, like you know, so much about music is saying, well, here's the Rolling Stones and they were influenced by Chuck Berry and Chuck Berry, you know, you can sort of like trace these the lineages of music and in a lot of the ways that uh, you can with wine. So that's something I love about wine. I think for what's so exciting about turning people onto it is that it can become this lifelong passion and you can't, you're never going to run out of stuff to learn or things to discover. So, um, yeah. And, and Chris, I'm happy for you to describe it that way, because to me, that's the aspect you use this word at the outset that makes it so relatable. Right. And, and part of the thing to me that I always love about wine is each bottle is its own unique experience. Each glass is its own unique experience because there's a ton of variables going on with each bottle. And then you open that bottle and you pour it into a decanter or a glass. And there's a whole bunch of variables that go into that. And so each time you're experiencing it, it's a different moment in your life. Like even if it's, you know, uh, five minutes after you open the bottle, the wine's different. And that aspect of it, just like, you know, the record collecting and enjoying records and listening to music and having that sort of factor into your life, that that's the relatable angle that I think you guys delivered in the book that made me feel a little less intimidated. Good. Yeah. There's also like a time capsule element of it, right? Where maybe you open a bottle of wine that you know was made 30 years ago. And that's really interesting because you're sort of like going back in time to that moment. But, but more, more importantly, you know, for me, when I, when I travel, if I go to Napa or I go to Italy or something, I'll buy a bottle of wine or two and bring it back. And even if I only wait like two years to drink that wine, it's kind of cool because it reminds you of that moment, you know? And, um, that for me has always been the biggest part of it is just being able to call a friend or Grant comes over or one of our you know mutual friends will all get together and open up a bottle or two of wine that's you know special for some reason or another and you know it brings people together it's more fun to do with friends it's it's a great hobby. So I, I want to ask a little bit more about about how to drink wine school. You sign up on Zoom, is that right? How do, how do people access it? Yeah, if you go to just um, theinfatuation.com slash wine, you can find all the details. But yeah, you, you basically come and sign up and we'll send you a Zoom link right before. Um, and, uh, and we spend an hour talking about the, uh, the subject of the day. So like Grant mentioned, today we'll be diving into a uh, controversial natural wine discussion for sure. Um, but yeah, we've been hitting topics and I think what we're trying to figure out is, um, they've been live obviously up to this point. We've got enough demand now from people in other parts of the world, quite frankly, between London and LA that we need to figure out how to probably just do them. Um, not necessarily live, but put them on the, on the internet somehow. Are they there now? Are the previous episodes available? We haven't put them up yet. If you, if you shoot us an email at wine at the infatuation.com, we're happy to arm you with some of the past episodes, but that's what we're working on now is really trying to formalize this a little bit more, create a situation in which you can go search by certain things. I mean, pretty soon here, we're going to have enough content that you can search by, you know, whatever varietal or topic we're talking about. And that way people can learn on their own time because hopefully we will have, uh, all of us will have more things on our calendar as, as things start to reopen. And I'm not so certain we're all going to have just like uh, endless amounts of free time to dial into an hour long, um, live wine sessions. So we're going to keep evolving it. It's been super fun. I think what Grant and I have always felt, and I think only been, you know, more convinced of uh, since we started this is that there really isn't something built out like this. That's for people who aren't trying to become wine professionals. Um, like I did the, um, court of international master sommeliers, like the introductory course for that a couple of years ago. And it was great. I learned a ton, but I think I was one of two out of 75 people that weren't already working in a professional in a restaurant or, you know, a wine shop or something like that. And so maybe we'll keep doing this. And I think I do just think there's a big opportunity for 
more ways that people can learn about wine that aren't focused towards the industry. Yeah. And I, I will say, I feel like this is kind of geared towards somebody like me. Um, I'm, I'm a person that likes to watch stuff uh, rather than sit down and read it. Now I'm in reading the book. I've been, I made it about three quarters of the way through already, but I also like just the, the interaction aspect of it. And I feel like I learn, I'm a, I learn better that way. I want to, before I let you go, I have this opportunity. I need some help with natural wine. Grant, can you help me? I'm, I'm lost. I, I close your eyes and grab a bottle, man. It, uh, well, no, I'm, I've tried it a bunch of times. It's funky. And I, 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 I can't figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't think I like it. And I'm not sure why it tastes like grass. It tastes like mold. It tastes like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't hit any of my previous life wine notes. What am I supposed to be doing? It's so tough. It's a crapshoot. There's some natural wines that are like totally fantastic as a category. We can't really define it according to like any specific flavor or region or anything for that matter. But it's much more of a crapshoot than if you're used to drinking like conventional or just normal wine. I don't even know what to call not natural. wine. Let's define it. What is natural wine? What's that mean? All right. So, <laughs> open to page 24. <laughs> I have the book. Natural natural wine, I wrote this all all down yesterday in anticipation of uh, of our Zoom, but natural wine, I think the best way to to be able to define it is that there's certain practices both in terms of like farming and then how the wine's made that a producer will try to adhere to, right? And that's like organic not adding certain uh, things in like sulfur, which is a preservative for wine, et cetera, et cetera. The end of the day though, that doesn't really matter that much to you because there's a lot of not natural wine that does that too. That's organic and made well, et cetera. And so I think for like consumers, the best way to like understand if you're like, Hey, I'm going to ask for a natural wine. What do, what do I, what do I, what am I bound to get? Right. If you just go in blind to a wine shop or restaurant, you're like, I want to try a natural wine. And they have, they have, they have one or not. They'll probably be like, okay, cool. Chances are they might only have natural wine. If you're at like a bistro in Paris or something like that, there's a lot of restaurants that are like, we only do natural wines. And so what you're likely going to get is something that instead of smelling like fruit and flowers, it does smell funky. Like you said, it smells like kind of wild and animal like, and like barnyard like there's, that's where sniffing the glass is like, you're going to smell it and it's just going to smell different. Right. And that's because of the way in which it's made is, is just different. And it's like sour beer, right? Like sour beers taste sour and they taste differently because they're made in a different way using different yeasts, et cetera, like a lot of nuanced shit. So, and so they taste different and that's the same thing with natural ones. Right. And so you're going to get something that tastes like flavors. You probably, definitely aren't going to expect chances are it's from a region that, you know, isn't like one of the main big regions, like natural wine from Napa Valley. Like that just doesn't really exist. Natural wine from Bordeaux. That doesn't really exist that much. Sure. There might be like a couple of things here. So it might be from some like weird part of France that you've never heard of, or I can, I don't know, Michigan or literally like West Virginia. There's all like weird places and, and it's experimental wine end of the day flavors are kind of funky and it might be from a place that like you're like well that's interesting i didn't know that they made wine in georgia the country whatever it is but they have been for you know thousands of years my translation is and i think we said this in the book that their natural wines are basically muppets super colorful pretty weird mostly lovable okay it sounds like i just need to keep experimenting and find keep keep you know yeah, my but also maybe not. i mean honestly that's the thing that I, i'm with you on the natural wine thing there's a few that i like but most of my wine i don't i just don't really want to drink like cloudy wine like i don't want to chew it you know and there's some wines that i love that i think the thing that i always felt that was and we'll talk this is what we're going to get into tonight which in our on our in our class but like the thing that I always found so so strange about the natural wine thing is it's so dogmatic, right? It's like, well, you only drink, I only drink natural wine, but the, the reality of it is, is some of the, you know, I guess what you call more traditional wines, they they're made, you know, biodynamically, they're made natural, they're made in a, in a very sort of, you know, honest and low intervention way, but they're just not for whatever reason, like put into the natural wine category, probably because they don't have like, 
you know, a purple eyeball on the label and, you know, whatever. So I think that's the thing that I always found so tricky about it is like, there is like, for some reason, there's like this dividing line that has to be drawn in the sand around like, well, I only drink natural wine because it doesn't give me hangovers or because, you know, there's all these reasons that are dubious to say the very least, but sure. If you find some stuff you like, great. You, you do not have to be so black and white about I'm on the natural wine side or on the, I guess, you know, traditional wine side. All right. Well, that, that makes me feel much better. It's like basically the same as, you know, I don't like Cabernet Franc. I, I prefer Bordeaux or something like that. You know, like it's just a preference thing, right? Like you're you're yeah. making me feel better. But for some reason, when you say that, there's not like thousands of people that will fight you on the internet and tell you that you're an idiot. You know what I mean? Like that's the weird thing about natural wine is there's this like, there's such a strange um, polarized audience around it that it, it is perfectly okay for you to say you don't like Cabernet Franc, but you start saying you don't like natural wine. Like watch what happens when this when this podcast goes up, you're going to get all these people being like, I can't believe this, you know, because I did start this off by saying all the things that I don't like about natural wine. So we'll see, but you, you made me feel better about it. So I think that's the right way to end our chat today. Chris Stang, Grant Reynolds. The book is how to drink wine. The easiest way to learn what you like. You can check out their wine school, how to drink wine, at theinfatuation.com slash wine, right? Fellas, it was a pleasure. I'm going to drink some wine tonight. Thank you. We are too. Let's do it together sometime. Let's do it together sometime. All right, my taste buds, there we go. Humongous thanks to Chris and Grant for giving us the time. Definitely check out their wine school, and how to drink wine, the easiest way to learn what you like. Get it from wherever you get your books. It's a nice, easy, light read. It's a perfect summer read. Hungry Homies want to encourage you to jump in your own selves. World Central Kitchen, the collaboration with The Ringer continues. We're looking for around $250,000. Our uh, beloved Jose Andres is out there feeding the nation, going city by city, and looking at, at food vulnerability and trying to provide meals to frontline folks and people who are in uh, tough situations who need food. The World Central Kitchen is out there doing it, trying to raise $250,000. Every little bit helps. So if you have a moment, jump on the World Central Kitchen website or the Ringer website. Uh, there's a link that we will we'll post on our Instagram at the House of Carbs. Easy to pop the link, make a quick donation. Everybody would appreciate it, and it all goes to the most crucial folks in need. So let's let's do it together. Taste Buds, we will be back next week. We're rolling along here on House of Carbs. Until then, let's stay hungry out there. <laughs> <laughs>